Before you listen to this episode of Macrodose, just a quick word from me on the show's future. PTO's partnership with Macrodose is coming to an end, and today's episode is the last that you'll be able to listen to via PTO, but the show will very much be continuing. So if you would still like to listen to James Meadway's excellent weekly roundup of all things economic, be sure to subscribe to Macrodose directly. Just search for Macrodose wherever you listen to your podcast to sign up, and also do check out their Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Macrodose, where you can also access lots of bonus content. You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, the podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. Before we get started with today's show, just a brief note to say thank you to everyone who's taken the time to support Macrodose so far. There are now thousands of you tuning in to our Economics Roundup each week, and we greatly appreciate each and every one of you. But to keep this show going over the longer term, we need a few more listeners to head over and subscribe to the show on patreon.com. We're now approaching 100 monthly subscribers, so a big thank you to everyone who signed up. To make the show sustainable over the longer term, we need to hit around 150 Macrodose patrons every month. And if we can get up to 250, we're going to start publishing a weekly newsletter that'll go out alongside the show, summarising some of the key takeaways of the week. If you head over to Patreon, subscribers have access to all our Macrodose Extra content, including the full-length interviews with economist Yanis Varoufakis and Labour journalist Sarah Jaffe. So if you have the means, please consider supporting the show. You can find us at patreon.com slash macrodose. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash macrodose. On to this week's show. And we'll be taking a look at, first, the news that the UK narrowly avoided dipping into recession at the end of last year. Second, I have a bit of a closer look at what a recession actually is and why the way we measure economic growth isn't always very useful. And finally, I take a look at how the UK's almost recession is hurting your local. For the first part of today's show, I want to take a look at the news this week that the UK narrowly avoided dipping into recession at the end of last year. Data published by the Office for National Statistics last Friday showed the UK's economy is still smaller than it was prior to the pandemic, but the expected recession that was forecasted by many economists has just about been avoided. Now, in economics, the recession is defined as two successive quarters of falling GDP growth. GDP, gross domestic product, basically being a measure of the market value of all the goods and services produced and sold in an economy over the course of a given time period. A recession, falling GDP growth, was widely expected, but joy of joys, official figures suggest that the economy didn't shrink. Instead, it grew precisely by nothing at all in the final three months of last year. This news suggests that the year ahead may be not quite as terrible as had previously been forecast. This is hardly a resounding triumph, but it backs up a trend of some better-than-expected economic data from across the developed world including the rising US job creation figures that we covered on the show last week, and the Eurozone, which also dodged a recession last year. These trends are thanks, in part, to a milder-than-forecast winter and Europe's plentiful supplies of stored gas, which have helped alleviate the pressures of growing energy costs across the continent. The story everywhere is broadly similar. The rapid decline in energy prices since the summer has significantly eased the costs on households and businesses, giving them a little more spending capacity. Now, whether or not households and businesses spend their money is the primary cause of recession. 
should either of them, either households or businesses, decide to stop spending for whatever reason, it can help push the whole economy into negative growth, into a recession. Government spending cuts, as we saw with the UK's austerity programme, can have a very similar effect, pushing the economy back towards that negative growth. So there's not much in the way of actually good news here. Looking ahead, there are three factors in play that could still push developed economies into recession or a crisis in the near future. The first is the potential bursting of China's property bubble. Especially as China's economy runs into a rough patch post-COVID, the strains of property asset inflation, which have been successfully held off for some years now, are becoming harder to manage. The backwash from financial crises in the world's second largest economy are likely to be fairly significant globally, although more likely, in the first instance, to hit the global south, where China is a massive lender and also a major importer of raw materials. The second threat comes from continually low household incomes, meaning households hold back in their spending and so drag economic activity down in general. And thirdly is a recurring theme in this podcast, which is the continuing disruption from the ecological crises in many different forms, which could push the price up and the supply down of food over the next year. Some or all of these, plus of course the genuinely unexpected events like aliens invading the United States on string balloons, would disrupt GDP growth across the world. So it is marginally good news this week that Britain avoided recession at the end of last year, but perhaps not many of you would particularly notice this with wages, as the news today from the Office for National Statistics showed, still falling way behind rather high inflation. And as we look ahead to the rest of 2023, there is still some way to go before we're out of the economic woods. To do that, we need to sort out our systemically broken economy, and that may take more than a few months of zero growth. Our second story looks more closely at GDP, or gross domestic product. Its growth is, especially in Britain, held up as a solution to most of our economic problems. Both main political parties, for instance, claim to be focused on restoring or improving growth. Its status as the most important indicator for the economy is usually unquestioned. But despite the fact that it is seemingly everywhere and much discussed, GDP is a complicated and increasingly inappropriate way to try and understand what is really happening in an economy. It is a figure that aims to capture the total value of economic activity taking place inside a country. If that figure is going up, we can claim there is more economic activity taking place, and if it goes down, we can say there is less. If it goes down for two successive quarters, that's two three-month periods of the year, this is what gets defined as a recession. All of this is usually presented without any question or much thought about what any of these figures are actually telling us. So it's worth unpacking a little further what we mean when we say gross domestic product. So GDP defines economic activity in the first instance as something that takes place in a market. If a car is made and sold, it can be added to GDP. But here's a problem. A great deal of what we do and what we value as real humans living real lives outside of economic models doesn't always take place through a market. If you care for a sick relative, this is a valuable activity, but it'll never appear in GDP. However, if you pay someone else to care for your sick relative, this would, in principle, appear in GDP because you've paid for it. There's a market involved, there's a price, it counts towards GDP. The fact that the actual activity taking place is identical is completely ignored by GDP. 
And if you take your sick relative to be cared for in the NHS, you create a real headache for government statisticians. There's no market for care, but clearly people are being paid and buildings kept open and supplies being brought to provide all the care that takes place inside the NHS. And so something is happening and it's a great deal of money going into this. So it needs to be included in your measure of economic activity. To include the measure, the ONS count up the amount of different activities taking place inside the NHS, like GP appointments or surgeries or whatever, and work out the cost of each to get a healthcare contribution to GDP. They put private healthcare and a few other things in on top of that. Now, notice that what's happened here is that the same activity, care for the sick, can have completely different impacts on GDP, depending on who is performing the activity and where. This problem of definition can produce all sorts of peculiar results. So, for instance, gross domestic product was reduced slightly in the last three months of last year by an increased number of absences from school, which meant that the school's output was lower. There's fewer people being taught. And so the contribution of education to GDP was reduced. In other words, if you play truant, you hurt gross domestic product. These issues became very pronounced during 2020 and 2021 as different countries were using different methods to try and count what was happening in their education and healthcare systems during the pandemic. And the result was that the UK's drop in GDP appeared somewhat worse than other countries. There's also an increasing difficulty with the great deal of activity that now takes place without money directly changing hands, mostly on the internet. If you sell a car, it's reasonably clear what's taking place. A bunch of people make the car for money. The company sells it also for money. The contribution to GDP is pretty obvious. If you watch a YouTube video for free that someone has uploaded for free on an internet service that you may not be paying for yourself, it's suddenly less clear what exactly might be taking place here. And the more stuff we move onto the internet, the more unreliable GDP starts to become. All of this is a long way around to saying that although we assume that what GDP captures is going to be immediately relevant to understanding the economy, this isn't necessarily the case. Gross domestic product was devised in the 1930s and popularized in the 1950s. It's a figure designed for a world where the government was a fairly small part of the economy and the private sector mostly sold physical products rather than services. It's not necessarily so useful now, and that's even before considering the problem that things which add to GDP may be intensely harmful for the environment, refining and then burning oil, for example. A number that once worked quite well as a guide to the economy over time has become no longer quite up to scratch in the digital age of the 21st century. If GDP went up in the 1960s, most people could expect to find themselves better off, more likely to be in work, better paid, and so on. But if GDP went down, as is a recession, the opposite would apply. Unemployment would rise, wages might well fall. So GDP still captures most of what we think of as economic activity. And if you look at the countries that have really transformed in the last few decades, China being the most obvious example, but you can see the same process across East Asia, their gross domestic products have shot up as a register of that transformation. These are bigger economies and significantly richer economies now. But for the developed world, the link between GDP and the economic outcomes we might care about has become very tenuous. Britain is an outstanding example. Gross domestic product has gone up a bit over the last decade or so. But real household incomes have not. Most people today are no better off than they were in 2008. So if GDP goes up or down a little bit, most people aren't going to notice one way or another. The things most of us will immediately notice are that prices are still rising much faster than before, and that pay is usually not keeping pace with this. 
One forecast by the Centre for Economics and Business Research suggests a typical household will be paying £500 more on food in 2023 than 2022. High price rises but lower pay rises are obviously one of the things driving us into recession. People are spending more on essentials like food and energy, and so cutting their spending on everything else, pushing the economy towards recession. So all of this is to say that while Britain technically avoided a recession in terms of GDP in the final months of last year, that doesn't mean the lives of people who live here are magically going to improve. If we're going to tackle the big challenges that lie ahead of us, climate breakdown being the most obvious, we're also going to need new ways to measure value in our economy. For the world we live in today, the metrics of the mid-20th century don't appear to be up to scratch. Our third and final story today zooms in to one particular part of how that unfortunate economic reality is playing out on the ground. You might have noticed if you live in the UK that pubs and bars are closing at their fastest rate for a decade. Over 500 closed last year alone, up 56% on the year before. And that's by itself a sign that the real economy, the one we live in, is suffering. Support during the worst of COVID kept bars in business, even as they weren't allowed to open, or could do so only with restrictions. But now that this support has ended, they've faced a post-pandemic double whammy. On one hand, because prices for energy and food and other essentials have shot up, people are cutting back on their spending on stuff that they enjoy but doesn't quite qualify as essential, like eating and drinking out. On the other side, the same soaring costs of energy have hit pubs and bars and other small businesses particularly hard, since they don't have even the fairly measly protection households have from rising prices. If customers aren't spending so much and costs have shot up, businesses are going to find it hard to survive. There's a longer-term trend at work here too, against drinking in general, especially for younger generations, and against socialising in pubs and bars when staying at home is significantly cheaper. There's not a lot we can or even should want to do about people wanting to drink less out of choice, but the decline of social spaces is a broader problem. We should be paying people not just enough to survive, but enough to live, and the mindless penny-pinching around pay is in reality slowly chewing up the social fabric. In the meantime, the pub industry is calling for support with their energy costs. It's a reasonable demand that could help secure the survival not only of pubs and bars, but small businesses across the country. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, unfortunately, has been marked by a kind of penny-pinching caution throughout his brief time in office, with threats to return to austerity just as soon as the next election is out of the way. This isn't exactly how we're going to turn our economy around, but starting with some of the smaller but essential parts of life is one route back to anything like a normal, functioning and healthy economic system. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.